Well, good morning. Welcome to our service today. It's great to have all of you here in person, and welcome also to those of you joining us online. Um, if you've been with us here at River Oaks several times, you've probably heard us talk about our Vision 2025. Our Vision 2025 is a much prayed about picture of what we hope our church will look like in the year 2025. It's our vision for what we hope the Lord will cause us to be, to become by that time. Our vision 2025 is not about the size of our budget or the number of people who are attending. It's about spiritual growth, spiritual growth in our church that results in outreach beyond our church. And central to this vision is a growing culture of prayer. You see a statement from the Vision 2025 on the screen before, and it reads this way, the emphasis on spiritual formation, that is spiritual discipleship growth, that leads to gospel-centered outreach, is joined with the culture of prayer at River Oaks. I think if we were rewriting it today, I would change the wording to say, is dependent upon a culture of prayer at River Oaks, because prayer is foundational to the Lord bringing about what we trust He'll bring about in our vision 2025. What we're seeking in our church is a culture of prayer. And I'm not just talking about prayer outside of Sundays. That's where most of the prayer goes on, little clusters and gatherings of people that meet in small groups before services, after services. But my hope is that when you come here on Sunday morning, you'll see people gathered together praying, especially at these tables at the back of our worship area. We refer to them as our, our prayer tables. Some of you were here several weeks ago when we had a block of time in our uh, morning service when we invited people to come for prayer. And this week I got <clears throat> an email from someone who uh, gave me permission to share her email. She said that that morning um, she was really struggling. She had been devastated by the, the passing, the death of a dear friend. She said, I know the Lord can heal any situation or circumstance, but I've always thought of grief being a process of healing that takes place over time. A sweet couple that I don't know by name anointed me with oil and prayed for my grief. Since that day, the burden I was carrying has been so much lighter. I know it was the Lord's touch on my heart. And while I know I'm still going through the process, there's no doubt in my heart that the Lord touched me that day, and I believe accelerated the process. And she just expressed thanks for the prayers of her church family. Now, when we think about this scripture that says, pray for one another that you may be healed, I imagine we typically think about physical healing. But there are many ways in which God works in us to bring about his healing. Healing from grief. God is not only a healer of the body, he's the restorer of the soul. I say all that to say this to you. Please never leave a worship service on a Sunday feeling like you need someone to pray for you. It is our highest privilege as pastors, elders, deacons to pray for you. We want to have a culture of prayer. Jesus himself quoted the scripture where God says, shall not my house be called a house of prayer for all the nations. 
So when you see people standing around at these tables, that's where you go for prayer. And if you ever need prayer here, I hope you'll take advantage of that. <clears throat> well, we continue this morning our study of the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Andrew uh, led us last week in the last segment of Luke chapter 6, which is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain, very similar to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus finished his teaching at the end of Luke chapter 6. Caleb read the passage for us today at the beginning of Luke chapter 7. What's happening here is that Jesus is entering into a place called Capernaum, and there is a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier over approximately 100 people. That's the word centurion. And this centurion <clears throat> had a much beloved servant who was deathly sick and at the point of death. And he wanted Jesus to come and heal him. Apparently he'd heard about Jesus, but he sent Jewish leaders to approach Jesus, himself not being a Jew, and pleaded for Jesus to come and heal his servant. But before he actually comes, the centurion sends words and says, tell him, Lord, just speak the word and my servant will be healed because I'm not even worthy to have you come under my roof. Well, when Jesus hears this, Jesus marveled. So we read in verse 9, Jesus marveled at the centurion. Now, there are only two places in the Gospels that I can think of where the Scripture says Jesus marveled. One is in Mark chapter 6, and there it says Jesus went to his own hometown and he could do no mighty work there except he healed a few sickly people. And he marveled because of their unbelief. But here, here, he marvels at the faith of this centurion. <clears throat> the centurion's faith was directly related to his humility. Jesus was going with these Jewish elders the centurion had sent to make his request. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent other friends saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now think about that for a moment. The centurion might have been sensitive to Jewish sensibilities that they weren't supposed to go into a home of a, a Gentile, but there's more at work here than that. This centurion has a high view of Jesus and a low view of himself. Genuine faith begins with humility. Biblical faith is never faith in ourselves. It's faith in our Creator, faith in our God, faith in our loving Savior. And this centurion recognizes the greatness of Jesus. And so Jesus marveled at his faith. And if Jesus marveled at this man's faith, I think it's worth our considering it a little bit further. What do we see in this passage about the centurion's faith that was so very significant? And what can it teach us? Well, first of all, the centurion's faith included belief in Jesus' power to heal. That's obvious, isn't it? He said, say the word and my servant will be healed. In verses 2 and 3, we read a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death. He was highly valued by him. 
And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Apparently, he knew enough about Jesus. He'd heard enough about Jesus. We don't know if he'd ever seen him personally or met him, but he believed in Jesus' power to heal. Furthermore, he believed in the authority of Jesus' words. The authority of Jesus' words. And this is remarkable. Note what we read in verse 7. When he, when he sends friends to tell him he doesn't, even, he doesn't even need to come. All you've got to do, Jesus, is speak the word. He said, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. You hear the man's humility? I didn't even presume to come into your very presence. But you say the word. You just speak the word. You don't even have to come here. You say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers unto me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And my servant do this, and he does it. Now look at those words carefully for a moment. Why does Jesus say, I too am a man, I mean, why does the centurion say, I too am a man set under authority? It seems like he'd say, I too am a man with authority. I too can speak and things get done. But he says, I'm a man under authority. And he goes on to say, I do have soldiers unto me and what I say they do. Perhaps he understood that Jesus the Son of God and the Son of Man was speaking God's words, that he was acting in the authority and under the authority of God the Father. Jesus himself said, I always do what I see the Father doing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus was always doing what God the Father was guiding him to do, directing him to do. Thus, his authority was God's authority. It was perfect. Clearly, the centurion believed that Jesus' words, just his words were authoritative. So even though he wasn't nearby the servant who was at the point of death, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. He believed not only in Jesus' power to heal, he believed in the authority of Jesus' words. <clears throat> now, this, I think, is a key idea, not only in this passage, but in this whole part of Luke's teaching. Now, here's why I say this. When you read the Bible, when you read the New Testament, you'll read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll read accounts of, of different healings, different things Jesus did and taught. And sometimes those events are placed and located in different places in different Gospels. I believe God not only inspired the very words of Scripture, but He inspired the placement of these accounts in the different Gospels. For example, a key truth in this account of the centurion is his belief in the authority of Jesus' words. All he's got to do is speak, and it's done. But notice that the account immediately follows the teaching at the end of Luke chapter 6 in which Jesus calls us to build our lives on the authority 
of his words. Immediately before we're introduced to the centurion, we read Jesus saying these words, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. <coughs> when, the, <coughs> when the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Here's the point. Jesus' authority applies not just to his healing, but to his teaching. The one who can speak and heal a sick servant who may be far away, the one who can speak and raise the dead is the one whose words also provide the authority on which our lives are to be built. Jesus is saying, build your life on my words, on the authority of my words, on my truth. That's the only way to endure the storms of life. And so the centurion, he believed in Jesus' power to heal, he believed in the authority of his words, but furthermore, his faith included belief in Jesus' compassion to act. The centurion not only believed in Jesus' power to heal, he believed in his willingness to heal. It's important to grasp this, I think. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus is revealing the heart of the compassionate God, our Creator, the God who the Old Testament says is gracious, merciful, full of compassion. So then centurion's faith included belief in Jesus' power to heal, belief in the authority of his words, and belief in his compassion to act. And Jesus marveled. He marveled at this man's faith. Now, Immediately after this, there is a completely different account in the Gospel of Luke. Caleb read it a moment ago. Jesus leaves Capernaum, and he goes to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a crowd are with him. And it, as he gets near the town, there's a man being carried out on a, on a funeral plank called a, a, a beer, apparently a plank of wood. And the young man is dead. His body is wrapped apparently in a cloth. And he was the only son of his mother. And his mother was a widow. And Jesus sees him coming out of the town of Nain. And the Bible says he had compassion on her. And he, he, he said, don't weep. The funeral procession stopped. And Jesus said, young man, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And the people were shocked. They said, wow, a great prophet has arisen among us, and the report spread everywhere. What does this account have to do with the one we just read about the centurion? The centurion at whose faith Jesus marveled. The centurion whose faith included belief in Jesus' power to heal, in the authority of his words, in his compassion to act. Well, now... With the widow's son, Jesus demonstrated these same three things. 
his power to heal, even to raise the dead. <coughs> the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life, has power to raise the dead as well as to heal. When he raised the widow's son, he also demonstrated the authority of his words. When he came up to the bier, he simply said to the young man, I say to you, arise. God's power was manifested through the speaking of Jesus' words. Jesus' words, again, we're seeing are authoritative, even to the raising of the dead. You know that the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, says this about Christ. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the very universe by the authority of his word. All this teaching is linked together, immediately following Jesus' call to build our lives on the authority of his words. Jesus is now demonstrating in the raising of this young man who is dead, not only his power to heal, even to raise the dead, the authority of his words, but again, his compassion. We read in Luke 7, 14 and 15, when the Lord saw her, that is, the widow, the mother of the boy who had died, he had compassion on her. Sometimes Jesus just looked at people and was, was moved with compassion toward them. The Greek word that is translated in English, moved with compassion, has to do with a stirring of the inward parts, the innermost parts of a person's body or being. He just... He saw people and he was moved <clears throat> to act for them. And he saw the, the mom, the widow, and he said, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the beer. Commentators suggest that the beer was probably a plank of wood and the dead man was wrapped in a cloth and carried on it. But Jewish law said that to, to touch that wooden plank, that beer, would render a person ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. A person would be defiled by that. Jesus was not concerned about ceremonial defilement. Jesus ate with sinners, prostitutes, and tax collectors. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus touched the funeral beer. Is Jesus just flaunting Old Testament ceremonial law? No. Jesus brought power over defilement. He brought life over death. He brought light over darkness. He brought purity over impurity. He brought grace over condemnation. Jesus isn't defiled. He's bringing life to the situation. So Jesus reveals God's power. He reveals his authority. He reveals his compassion. Now, let me pause just for a moment here and say, these are important things to know about Jesus. He's all-powerful. His words are authoritative. You can build your life on his words. He is compassionate. 
more compassionate than we have known, than we have grasped. It's important to know these things. But just knowing these things, these three things about Jesus, knowing that they're true, they're important. But just knowing them won't make you a Christian. Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, gives us an account about another centurion. And this centurion we read about in the book of Acts. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, also wrote uh, the book of Acts sometime later. The book of Acts is the account of the early Christian church after the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the grave. And in Acts chapter 10, Luke tells us about another centurion, and he's in many ways much like the one we read about in Luke chapter 7. He's a good man. He's a devout man. He's a generous man toward God's work. He's a God-fearing man. His name was Cornelius. And we read these words. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He's a Gentile. He's not a Jew. But he's a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. Wow, I'd say he's, he's pretty devoted, right? About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now... Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who's called Peter. Now, why did he need to hear something from Peter? And wasn't he already a good man? Didn't he already believe in God? Yes, he did. At the same time, Peter, Simon called Peter, is having a time of prayer on a rooftop And God speaks to him and tells him he's to go with some men who are coming, go to the house of Cornelius, even though he's a Gentile and Jewish law forbade uh, a Jew going into the house of a Gentile and eating with him, but he's to go. God's overruling that now. And he's to take the words of life, the words about Jesus in his death on the cross, in his resurrection from the grave. So Peter went and he spoke, and in part of his sermon in Cornelius' house, Cornelius had gathered his family, his friends, a big crowd. Peter says, we're witnesses of all that he did, that is Jesus, both in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. And then he goes to the crucifixion. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Then he goes to the resurrection. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to All the people but us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God of the living and the dead, as judge of living and dead. All the prophets testify of him, what? That through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. As Peter's preaching, the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius and those with him. And Cornelius, who needed to know that the good shepherd had now become the Lamb of God who paid for our sins and was raised from the dead, 
became a believer. So here's the point. Even good people need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even very good religious people who pray and who give need to know and need to understand that Jesus, the good shepherd, became the Lamb of God who died on the cross and there shed his blood to atone for our sins. He was raised from the dead and through our faith in him, everyone who believes receives forgiveness of sins. As Peter said, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Now this good man, Cornelius, who was seeking God, found him. God responded. God sent the word of the gospel to him. It's important to know that Jesus has all power, that his words are authoritative, that he is compassionate. But just knowing truths about Jesus doesn't make you a believer. What makes you a believer is recognizing that this great man, this great son of God and son of man, gave his life as a sacrifice to atone for our sins and was raised from the dead. Now, as we reflect on these passages, I'd like to raise just three questions by way of personal application. Number one is this. you're a believer in Jesus, you've put your faith in him, I would ask you this, or let's ask ourselves this rather, am I honoring the authority of the Lord's words by the way I live? If Jesus' words are authoritative enough to heal and to raise the dead and even to uphold the whole universe, are they authoritative authoritative enough to guide my life? Am I building my life on the solid foundation of the authoritative words of Jesus? Having received him as Savior and Lord, am I honoring his words as my Lord and my Savior? Secondly, am I trusting that his power can do all that needs to be done to make me his devoted follower. Sometimes when it comes to obeying Jesus' words, we worry about how things are going to work out if we seriously really do what he says to do. And we think, well, couldn't I be happier going my own way on this matter, on this one, on this issue? But the God who directs us with his authoritative word also empowers us. He empowers us to be able to obey his word, to live it out, to walk it out. And he enables us to become the people he calls us to be. By the power of his Holy Spirit, he makes us his devoted followers. And he wants us to believe that. Thirdly is this. Do I really understand the Lord's compassion for me? I think some people think this way. Some people think, well, I believe Jesus died for me, but I'm really not sure he likes me very much. Now, I know that sounds funny. It sounds funny 
But it's not funny if you really feel that way. And I think there are quite a few people who do really feel that way. They have the doctrine right. Jesus died for our sins. They, they grasp that. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. They, they've got that right. But yet in their heart of hearts, they do not really feel loved by God. Many who feel, I'm a second-class Christian. I'm saved. God's probably never going to use me in a big way like he does some other people. Um, I'm really not sure he loves me that much. I don't feel loved by God. I'm not suggesting we live our lives based on feelings. But you and I must grasp the reality that we are loved by God if we are to grow in our own love for God. And it is, it is love for God that compels an obedient life. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my words. How does it come about? How does it come about that we really begin to recognize that, that we're loved by God? Well, first of all, I think you have to recognize this. Those things that you reflect upon in your past that make you feel second class, those things you still struggle with that make you feel second class, come to the realization that the God who created you took it upon himself to come and be sacrificed on a cross to himself pay for your offenses against him. He took the initiative himself because he chose you to set his love upon you to pay for those offenses himself. And then we need the Holy Spirit. We don't manufacture feelings of love. The, the book of Romans 5 and verse 5 says, The love of God is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit imparts to us awareness of the reality of the love of God. And it is grasping the fact that we are loved by God that causes us to love him. As John says, we love him because he first loved us. And as Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my words. When you love him, you want to obey him. I remember as a, a freshman in college, it's the same college of the team that won the basketball game last night, by the way, just in case anybody's wondering about that in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, praise the Lord for that, if it's okay to say that. <clears throat> Sorry, our friends from Duke and Durham here. Um, what was I talking about? Yeah, something's <laughs> spiritual before I quench the... Well, let me proceed. 
freshman year, the day I, I prayed with someone in the undergraduate library to give my life to Jesus, to put him on the throne of my life, went back to my dorm that night. Me and some other guys had planned this big party. I mean, everybody was going to get drunk. It was a big party. And I remember standing there that night, and something was different. And it wasn't a legalism that you can't do this, you can't do that. It was love for God. It was love for God that I, I no longer want to get drunk. I no longer want to do There's love. I don't want to dishonor my Lord. I love him. And I want to obey him. I haven't always felt that way. Lots of times I haven't, but my hope is to walk in the Holy Spirit more and to live out that love because when we, we love God and recognize his love for us, it compels our obedience. If you love me, you'll obey my words. And so I'll ask again, <coughs> do I understand the Lord's compassion for me? Do I understand his love for me? I would point you to that this morning. Realize his love for you. He loved you enough to personally pay for your offenses against him. Accept this by faith. Don't try to earn his favor through faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection by faith. Accept his favor. May he help us with that. Let's pray. Father, we come in the name of our Lord Jesus, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word and the word of his power. Your words are authoritative. Lord, please forgive us for the many times we have not lived them out. Please forgive us for not building our house, our lives, on the sure foundation of your authoritative words. And please lead us in your love <coughs> to grasp your great goodness. How thankful we are, Lord, that you who died were raised and you live. And because of that, we live with you. Help us grasp the reality of this, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen.